I'm Brandon Bartnick, and this is the Future of Mobility Podcast. The Future of Mobility Podcast is focused on the pursuit of safe, sustainable, effective, and accessible transportation of goods and people. Given the critical nature of the world's climate and energy needs, these topics have never been more important, and they're certainly important to me. So, this podcast is a weekly interview series in which I learn from and put the spotlight on the people helping to develop and implement the technology required to move us forward. Who am I? As mentioned, my name is Brandon Bartnick, and I'm an engineer who realized that making a positive impact is the most important thing to me, both through this podcast and my career in the industry. If you're passionate about any of the topics I cover here, please feel free to reach out on LinkedIn or Twitter. I'd love to connect. Also, if you hear anything you like, please consider sharing the future mobility with a friend or colleague. This podcast is brought to you by Edison Manufacturing and Engineering. Technology innovation is great, but it doesn't mean anything if we can't bring our impactful products to life, which means we have to build them. And unfortunately, that's easier said than done, especially for startups and evolving companies that need a reliable option for low volume builds. That's where we come in. Edison is your turnkey manufacturing partner, specializing in build and assembly of highly complex products in annual volumes of 10 to tens of thousands, utilizing an agile and capital light approach. If you need a trusted manufacturing partner, then please visit us at edison-mfg.com or feel free to reach out to me directly at brandon.bartnick at edison-mfg.com or by visiting my LinkedIn page, Brandon Bartnick. Now to this week's episode. Today's guest is Charlotte Hamilton. Charlotte is CEO, co-founder, and board member at Konomics. Konomics is a team of work-hardened battery experts turning sulfur cathodes from the out-of-reach holy grail of lithium-ion cathodes into a global product with, with the energy, power, and cycle life demanded by the EV revolution. We're talking batteries, we're talking battery cell chemistry, and we're talking specifically cathodes and lithium sulfur cathodes. As Charlotte mentioned, for several reasons, kind of thought of as the holy grail here. A really, really interesting discussion here with, with Charlotte. So I didn't know really what to expect coming into this. I think I've heard from several individuals in the battery chemistry space. A lot of people making big claims, a lot of people say, saying that they're doing incredible things here. But I, I was really blown away by this conversation with Charlotte, and I, I hope you enjoy this. So we talked at the molecular level about what's actually going in on in a lithium sulfur battery cell and in the cathode in particular. And I got to say, Charlotte did an excellent job. I think the most clear description that I've heard of how this, the mechanism actually works and, and how, um, yeah. And then also the challenges that have historically been faced by lithium sulfur, what happens when you overcome those initial challenges, the new challenges that come up, how those are overcome and the cycle of, um, really interesting kind of hearing how they've thought about this and how, how this actually works again at the molecular level. But, um, a few things, a few things that stood out. So one surprisingly small team making a potentially long-term play, potentially more sustainable growth play. Um, also, Charlotte was very clear throughout the discussion about their emphasis on not making too big of claims or promises until they can back it up by data, which they now believe they can. So I'll, I'll leave it here for now. Charlotte, excellent uh, description of many of these things in, in the episode. So Without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Charlotte Hamilton. Today, I'm joined by Charlotte Hamilton. Charlotte, thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks so much, Brandon. I'm happy to be here. 
Yeah, looking forward to getting kind of your unique perspective, doing some cool stuff in the, in the battery space with Konomics and excited to hear, you know, what, what what you're working on, how things are evolving, how you see the, the future playing out, all those types of things. So would you mind starting by setting the stage a bit and sharing a bit about the company, the background, where, where you are now, those types of things? Yeah, sure. Um, Konomics is a battery technology company based in Ithaca, New York. Uh, we're 20 people. And uh, I founded the company in 2014. Uh, we originally worked on silicon anode technology uh, to increase the energy density for uh, batteries for cars. We switched in 2016 in stealth mode to work on lithium sulfur technology on the cathode side of the battery. And the primary benefit there is uh, high energy, but an extremely low cost. It's a very hard material to make work. So we've made a number of kind of key technical advances and uh, we're kind of excited about the future. Uh, here in 2023, we stayed in stealth mode, I think from, I guess, 2016 to about 2021, 2022, we weren't really talking much about what we do. Um, but at this point, we're ready to talk a little bit more and uh, we're happy to have the conversation. Yeah, maybe the obvious question there is, so what, what's, what made you want to flip the switch and start to be more and more public facing? I have to imagine that was a something that came up often as there was so much yeah. excitement around the EV space over the last five plus years. Yeah, it's it's interesting. We the EV space is, you know, it's it's one of these things where there's just lots and lots of people working on exciting technology. And the 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 market demand for high energy batteries is huge, right? For automobiles and all different kinds of electrification. And so there are a lot of startup companies, and I think that makes it a really crowded field. Mm -hmm. So I think before we really had some of the advances nailed down and really locked down um, with patent applications and other things, before we really had the key technical advances where we thought we could really say, okay, we're on a path to making lithium sulfur work for automotive before we were ready to say that, which required data and teamwork and lots of years of effort, before we were really willing to say that, we just really didn't want to stick our heads above the sand because the, the world is kind of littered with breathless claims about batteries of all different kinds of technology, mm -hmm. um, lithium sulfur just being one. Um, I think there's an old Thomas Edison quote about, I'm going to get this wrong, but just that... Uh, the chemical energy storage it business is entirely filled with charlatans and liars. It's like this idea that storing energy using chemistry is something that uh, is, it's just, it's, you, you can make advances that seem like an advancement, but actually doing that in a fully integrated cell that can mm -hmm. actually perform in an automobile is extremely difficult. So with that kind of backdrop of like, yeah, the every day there's a new announcement about a breathtaking new chemistry for automotives, and it doesn't ever seem like there's something new actually on the market until we felt like we could really say something different and unique about lithium sulfur, about our technology. We didn't feel it was necessary to really talk about it, so we just stayed quiet. I'd be curious to learn more about kind of the this technology development process and how you're how mm -hmm. you're viewing and evaluating and trying to figure out when when it makes sense to flip that switch. So are you are you following something like a TRL like technology readiness level assessment or what what's what's kind of the process that you're looking at of 
the system of saying, hey, yeah, we've checked these boxes and we have, yeah. yes, there's still things to prove at the vehicle level or whatever, but we, we feel confident based on X and Y. Yeah. Um, a lot of the people we work with kind of follow a TRL level and it's a very kind of common phrase is in the industry um, across multiple industries um, in polymers, which is what I worked on before batteries. Um, we we founded the company to get the technology into automobiles. Like that's why we started the company. It was focused on automobiles to begin with. And automotive has very stringent requirements for the batteries. Um, and automotive follows a process of kind of auto A, sample auto b auto c mm -hmm. so each one of those typically taking a year followed by an auto d sample before it actually goes into full production so we think less in in trl level and more can we hit the performance targets that automotive requires and what are the steps between us and that and there are still several which i'm super willing to talk about we at this point have hit what we think are automotive performance levels on the cathode side of the battery, which is a real first for lithium sulfur. And we do that in a number of ways that I'm happy to kind of talk mm -hmm. about to the extent I can in a public forum. But um, we're still making pouch cell, single layer pouch cell batteries and coin cells for testing purposes. And automotive is our focus. It's why we started the company is to advance electrification for automobiles and to do it in a cost effective way. But if it's, if you're aiming at this largest market, you can't really start small. Like it, meaning what, what am I saying? It's, it, I'm saying it's very hard to actually go to market with a very small amount of production. It's, mm -hmm. it's necessary to hit technical targets before you really start any kind of scaling process. So we haven't yet hit fully integrated technical targets. So before we do that, there's no reason to scale the technology into say multi-layer pouches or a wound cylindrical cell or something like that, because we're very kind of data focused as a company. And we don't think at this point that we're ready for the scale because the technology doesn't justify the scale yet. We hope it will very soon. And why, why such a clear focus on automotive, especially in this probably wasn't the case in 2014, but especially over the last few years as, you know, aviation, marine yeah. offer of like there's, there's um, even consumer electronics. There's a lot of, a lot of places that need better batteries. Right. And I have to imagine that the, there's been questions and the, the allure of, Hey, should we look at an offshoot as kind of a lower volume test out the mm -hmm. technology? What, why this dedicated focus on automotive? Yeah, I think we were asked that question in most interviews that uh, that I do and in a lot of boardroom discussions and a lot of investor conversations along the way. It's like, I remember we had a very deliberate decision in 2017. Should we should we work on drone batteries uh, for unmanned aerial vehicles, for instance? Mm -hmm. And we 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 made a very deliberate decision at that point. Um, and to stay focused on automotive. It's the single largest market for lithium ion batteries and it's fast growing um, and it's mandated to grow further. So the world has recognized that they have to make a switch from hydrocarbon based transportation to electric and alternative fuel vehicles. And they're mandated in several places by 2035 to be 100% um, EV 
new vehicles. So California, New York, several other states in the US, the UK, Europe. So in 2014, that wasn't the case, but it was still the largest market. You look at a automobile, electric automobile is going to have several thousand batteries. So um, arranged in modules, arranged in a pack, right? Mm -hmm. So but individual cells, you're looking at several thousand cells. And so it's just the largest possible market, and it's got very stringent requirements, but those requirements actually are very perfectly tailored for lithium sulfur. Um, they were also pretty good for silicon anode as well, but uh, we made the switch off of silicon anode for a slightly different reason, which I'm happy to talk about. Yeah, and I'm I'm excited to get into some of the the nitty gritty details here in, in yeah. a minute. But, but I guess before we get there, I, I and I always I don't know, I'm I'm a business development guy, so I always I tend sure. to think of kind of the, the go to market strategy and, and such. But so thinking about okay, you have automotive, you now have a relatively small set of potential customers, depending on how yeah. broadly if you're going after the big OEMs or some of the newcomers. But e either way, it's a relatively small set. How? I guess how have maybe it's it's somewhat two questions in one of like how how have you thought about going after this from a commercial perspective and also like how does this process actually work for these OEMs right so they have almost everyone has batteries already in production they have the next few years planned out they they're making some bets on new technology but like what what does it actually look like for you to come to them and say hey look here's something that you should consider and that we should mm -hmm. look into and go get into this process of advanced development and see what it looks like. Yeah, it's it's a challenge for sure. You're exactly right. There aren't very many auto, automotive OEMs. Um, you know, most people can name them and it's like less than two hands, right? So there it's a limited customer base, but they're some of the largest companies in the world and they have very serious requirements both from their own corporate strategic goals of zero emission vehicles and they're facing these government mandates that i talked about earlier mm -hmm. so they're also deeply affected by the core mismatch of the economics of batteries with 100 percent ev uh vehicles 100 percent of vehicles being ev rather the economics don't really work with the existing um long-range batteries they're they went up in price for the first time last year in december um, and they're already extremely price sensitive within the auto companies and no amount of kind of increased production is really going to drop the price of those existing chemistries. So the automakers are all interested in solutions, um, but they're also all very wary of, you know, um, breathless claims about batteries, right? They've all been burned before by people presenting new technology, um, presenting it at maybe a TRL level that it's not, or a performance level that it really can't hit in an integrated mm -hmm. system, um, because things work really great sometimes in a smaller system, but they're not going to work in an automotive system where you've got a multi-layer pouch, for instance, with very tight electrolyte requirements, as one example. So the auto companies are open to conversation if you have a truly dramatic benefit, which we do. You know, we're talking about reducing the price of long range EV batteries by up to 75%. So it's a huge cost savings, which is part of what's amazing about lithium sulfur. It's also extremely difficult. And we make the best lithium sulfur batteries that we know of, but we know that they're not good enough for automotive quite yet. And we know exactly why. We know the 
failure modes and we know the next steps. So mm-hmm. we have to go into the auto companies and they'll all talk to us, which is great. And we're happy to talk to more of them. Um, but we go in with a very honest data set saying, here's our, in business development terms, right? Here's our value proposition. We can reduce the cost by 75% of these batteries and still hit automotive specs. Okay, great. But it's a long road and here's where we are. And we show them very realistic development paths and very realistic steps for the next step of cell integration on our side, the next step of partnership with the auto companies. So it's been an interesting conversation. You know, I talk to the automakers and so do, so do my kind of co-founders here and um, their eyes kind of glaze over at the start often. It's like, oh, it's another battery startup. Mm-hmm. But as soon as we tell them we're not good enough and here's why, and this, these are the steps that we're taking, as soon as we tell them that second part, the attention and the, the relationship starts to grow from there because you have to be very realistic in a hard technology company like this. Yeah, and it's it's counterintuitive, but I mean, even uh, I found yeah. in my my own experience that like one one of the biggest uh, deals that we, we came to like it about halfway through, I went back to the guy and was like, "Well, to be honest, I don't think we're the right partner based on what you're presenting here." And, and yeah, that, that kind of opened the discussion of well, let's let's have further conversation about why and kind of work together. And yeah, people aren't yeah. looking for a blind sales pitch. There's there's enough sleazy salespeople out there that uh, people have heard from. Yeah, and I think in the battery world, um, there's there's just a lot because it's easy. I'm not kind of maligning anyone's character. I'm just saying it's easy to see that to to be very hopeful, right? Mm-hmm. Because you, you've made an innovation in an academic setting, or you've made an innovation on one part of a battery, and you're making the steps, and you're like, okay, well, I've made all these innovations, and now the next steps are going to be just as easy as the last steps, mm-hmm. and you know, it's just around the corner. And, you know, certainly from from an academic standpoint, it, it's often kind of overblown, um, but real commercial development takes years and years and is extremely difficult. And that's my background. It's the background of the team here. So mm-hmm. we are very realistic about our timelines. And I think that's been refreshing for the automakers that we do talk to. Um, you know, here's the path. This is what we still need to do. Um, but We've got a lock on a performance level that is amazing and enables um, really truly EV level performance uh, from a sulfur cathode. And we've got the, you know, five years of stealth plus data to back it up. So it's, we're very transparent with our partners about data. Um, You know, I, I can't share performance data here on a podcast, but, you know, within within partners that we talk to, and we talk to many of the major automakers, um, we're very open about our data and about our development plans. Yeah. And I think that's a good distinction you, you made too, of even if, I mean, yeah, sure. There are, are some people with unscrupulous people out there, but even the people with the best intention, like I, I think of the first time I was hit by this reality of kind of the gap between academic and commercial. So I, I started my career at Boeing and we yeah. had a, a new glue that we were introducing for a certain application and like ran some tests on some small things. And we're like, this works perfectly. We're ready to go. And then we give a presentation to someone and they're like, well, in the development, they use the TRL process. You're, like, You're at about yeah. a three or a four because that's not a production. That's not production scale. It's not production setting. It's not 
this tooling that we're going to use in production. It's not the, all of these different factors of yes, sure. It works on this small little thing that we did and it worked a bunch of times and it worked really well, but at the same time and in the automotive level, I mean, yeah, sure. There's, there's some areas where the, uh, the aerospace is, is for, but like, especially something like you were talking battery cells, which is so safety critical within automotive and the scale that you're looking at and the, the value of recalls if something goes wrong and like, yeah, this is the, there's a lot of work to be done to prove that there's nothing going to, that nothing's going to go wrong before a new technology gets introduced. Yeah. If, if you were looking at the cost curves for lithium ion in, you know, 2014 and, you know, you're like, okay, well, there's going to be more and more gigafactories built. There's going to be more and more development made, and you're going to just continue to drop that price from, mm-hmm. you know, $160 a kilowatt hour or something like that. And that time frame down to, $80 or $60 or $40 a kilowatt hour, because you could just look at it and say, okay, it's going to keep going down into the right. The, the problem is they're based, those high energy cells, traditional lithium ion cells that are longer range are based on scarce materials on mm-hmm. the cathode side. And so we looked at that in, you know, 2015, 2016, when we made this switch with some of the universities that we work with to really work on lithium sulfur in a very technical, very commercial way, we said, okay, that's going to, uh, it's it's going to asymptote out. It's going to, the cost curve is going to flatten out because your bill of materials is going to be, li- you're, no, you're only going to get so cheap on those materials. And in fact, you could start to go the other way. Mm-hmm. Um, you could start, the prices could start to go up because of the scarcity of cobalt specifically, but also high purity nickel. Um, lithium itself has scarcity issues, but they're expanding manufacture, they're expanding extraction and purification of lithium around the world. So that lithium will probably keep up. Nickel and cobalt, you're in a really tight spot there. So, you know, the auto companies, I think when we talked to them, you know, we were talking to them when we were quiet mode. Um, you know, they were they were thinking, okay, well, we'll keep driving the price down. We're good at buying things and we're good at yeah. buying things at very high volume. So we'll just keep driving the price down. And ultimately you just can't because I think the latest data from a couple of days ago was that there's 10% of new car sales worldwide are EV now. And you you need to go to 100% in 12 years. And what does that do to those cost curves? So I think in the boardrooms of the largest automakers and in the product planning and powertrain and and battery groups at the largest automakers, they're well aware of the issues. So we now have the attention of a few major automakers, and um, you know we're we're telling them where we are and uh, and trying to move forward. Oh yeah, I think good points there, and I, so I'd like to I'd like to walk through kind of the life cycle of economics so far. And so you've, sure. you've already just just mentioned on this, but so you started with right the silicon anode approach, and you, you just touched a little bit on why you made the shift. But can you talk of first of all why why was that the first theory that your theory that you had for where you wanted to go to to make a big innovation here, and then why well, why the shift now to to lithium sulfur back when you made that change? Yeah. Um... So I'm an entrepreneur by like career. I've always worked on university technology. Um, this is my third company spun out of Cornell University that has been venture backed. And, um, you know, I've been I've been through it. It isn't my first rodeo, as they say. Right. So I 
I look for technology that's truly unique and um, that has a very large market potential and solves that, gets to that solution set in a unique way that can be protected. And when I started Konomics, we had a technology that I felt met that, which was a, a potential low, low cost way to make nanostructured silicon for the anode side of a battery. So silicon has a higher energy uh, density on the anode side. And you've probably, I know you've covered some silicon companies. Mm -hmm. um, you have to have it nanostructured because as you lithiate it, it's going to expand in size um, quite a bit. And if you don't have it nanostructured, it'll kind of pulverize when you, um, when you expand and contract that silicon. We had a method um, based on an innovation at a Cornell lab that we had exclusively licensed to Konomics to make nanostructured silicon potentially in a roll-to-roll -roll process. Um, we hadn't done it in a roll-to-roll -roll process, but it was from cheap precursors, potentially roll-to-roll. -roll. And it made a nanostructured silicon that was slightly different than others. So we thought it had legs as a startup, and we thought like, okay, well, you've got an increased energy density. you got a potential way to make this um, cheaply, um, whereas others were making it in kind of pretty expensive uh, vapor deposition systems and things like that. Um, or they were making it um, kind of piece like batch process instead of continuous flow. So, okay. We worked on that for a little while and it ended up 2014 was a really rough year to, to start a battery company. It was extremely kind of difficult to raise funding. Um, you know, batteries were a bad word with investors um, in 2014. I think the market dynamics were still there. People still realized, okay, there's going to be electric cars someday, um, lots of them. But the um, there were some pretty notable um, failures in the battery space previously that had um, lost a lot of investors a lot of money. So it's a little difficult to raise money. And I'm also doing this all from Ithaca, New York, where I've always... Uh, kind of built these companies. And Ithaca is an amazing place to do business and it has great technology in um, a stone's throw from Cornell University and it's a great place, but it's not a, not the best place in the world to raise venture capital. So we had a bit of a, um, what's the opposite of a head start? <laughs> like we were, we were starting behind the line in terms of just raising the capital that we needed to move this technology forward. So we looked at that and saw other competitors in the lithium, um, lithium ion space that were also working on silicon anodes. Those companies um, are now kind of name brand in the battery world. They've advanced because they were based in Silicon Valley and had more or and or had more access to capital and they had a bit of a head start. So I had a technology that was different and I thought it was differentiated, but I didn't think it was differentiated enough. Hmm. And if I'm kind of starting behind the line, these people are already running down the field. I didn't think I could really catch up in time um, with something that wasn't unique enough. Um, so we put a pause on that um, and we had raised very, very few dollars at that point. Some of our early seed funders had had been supporting us and we looked for new technology. And that's when we found these three different pieces of technology from uh, Cornell, Stanford, and uh, Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. So these three different academic research groups had all addressed sulfur in a very specific way. 
and had some very compelling results academically. So we looked at those three pieces, realized that we could in-license those to the company and really make a run at solving the cathode problems within lithium sulfur. Um, the other kind of key piece, if and I know you've covered lithium sulfur before, um, it's it's typically not a lithiated system. So you typically start without lithium on the cathode. You can make it lithiated. There are ways to do that, but we, for the most part, folks start without lithium in the cathode. So it typically depends on a lithium ion, a, a lithium metal, sorry, a lithium metal anode. So for its source of lithium ions. The historic approach to lithium sulfur had been to solve both those problems at once. The, the problems on the lithium anode side and the problems on the cathode side. And that makes it kind of a two-part problem. Mm -hmm. We felt in 2016 that enough folks were working on the lithium metal side that we could just focus on the cathode side. And by the time we were done with the cathode innovations and by the time we pushed the cathode far enough, the lithium metal protection systems and the lithium metal anodes would be advanced enough that we would be good to partner with those companies. So that was kind of, we had a head start now instead of starting behind the line because we had this technology from three great universities. And instead of running, I'm mixing my metaphors, but instead of running two races at once, we decided we're yeah. only going to run one. We're just going to work. Did you see that bet that someone was going to figure out the lithium part? Yep. The primary risk. It was absolutely risky. And um, it was in in startup land, it's it's uh, innovation betting on an innovation, or it's a startup betting on startups, because those were primarily startups that were working on the lithium metal side. Although over time, pretty much all of the large battery makers have also worked on um, protected lithium metal or sometimes called solid state, it, which is a slightly complex term. It's not always used in the same way by every person, but lots of players were working on that to the tune of billions of dollars of research and development and commercialization. So mm -hmm. it was a risk because we were betting on that being a solution. Um, ultimately, the timing hasn't, isn't perfect, and I'll get to that, but um, we got the cathode done. Um, we got the cathode to where it's really performing at automotive levels. Um, I can get into exactly how we know that and exactly how we do that. Mm -hmm. Well, not exactly how we do that because I'm on a podcast, but I can go into it in, in some detail. The anodes for protected lithium anodes for lithium sulfur systems are not something I can just go down to like anodes or us and buy them off the shelf. I can't do that yet. So that timing didn't totally work out. There's still development to be done on the anode side but it's a lower voltage system and we have a bit of a head start there. So we've been working on anode solutions and working with multiple partners on the anode side for a number of years now. And, and just quickly back to that decision point, right? Of do you yeah. try to solve both of these problems at once or do you make a bet that someone else is going to figure out that piece and will be willing to partner with you when the time comes so that you can come together. So Ultimately, it seemed there. I'm inferring that you made the decision. Well, this is actually the least risk, the less risky path of the two, because there's, <laughs> yes, you're relying on external partners, and there's this other technology that is an enabler for you. But uh, 
that's a better path than you guys trying to dilute yourselves and go after both at the same time. But I mean, yeah, is that how you were thinking about it's, it or am I missing something? Yeah, It's a focus issue too. It's similar yeah. to, um, you know, why did we only focus on automotive? Because we only wanted one set of requirements that we as a team were working on, you know, ultimately we're 20 people working on this and we're in Ithaca with access to the, the best technology in the world. And we now work with uh, Linda Nazer up at Waterloo University in Canada. We've been working with her for a number of years as well in terms of she's one of the world leaders in uh, lithium sulfur development. So um, we have access to the best technology in the world, but I'm still competing against companies in Silicon Valley. I'm competing against global companies. If I didn't stick to my knitting and do one thing and do it well, I mm -hmm. think we would have got lost in the wash. <laughs> yeah. I'm mixing my metaphors again. But I think if we'd done both things, we didn't have the resources. And um, I think we would have done both things badly instead mm -hmm. of one thing extremely well, which is what we did. So we said, okay, this is what it's going to take to solve the cathode side. It's more than just polysulfide shuttle. Um, and I'll explain exactly what that is to, to, to your listeners and things. It's more than just kind of the traditional problems with lithium sulfur. It's actually much more complicated than that. Mm -hmm. And so we were able to solve that and put four universities technology to work, plus our own technology. We're now at dozens of patent families and we're pushing to where we just spoke with one of the one of the world's largest automakers um, yesterday, actually, and talking to them about, okay, here's our performance. And the people that are evaluating that kind of thing are very serious people. You know, they've seen every battery startup company in the world, most likely, mm -hmm. and they ask very tough questions. And we can say, okay, here is why our performance is where we say it is on the cathode side. And here it is, here's why it is not where we say it is on the anode. I mean, here's where we know it's not on the mm -hmm. anode side. And these are the steps that it's going to take to make it a successful product that can slot into your long-term roadmap. Those conversations go well based on the strength of the data and us being straightforward about the the hard road that's still to come for lithium sulfur. But the rewards are real. Yeah. And for the automakers, yeah, 75% cost savings is stunning. Um, and but it's a lot of a lot of there between here and there still. Yeah. And and so so I think maybe a, an open-ended kind of story time might be the best way to, to approach this, right? So, so the sure. cathode side, right? So, and take this where, wherever you think is most impactful, but so, yeah, what are the traditional challenges with that sulfur um, cathode and what are the additional challenges that people might not realize? How are you addressing these things and how do you know you're doing a good job? Like kind of, yeah. Can you take us through that story? Yeah. Yeah. I can take you through it for sure. Um, yeah. Lithium sulfur, very high energy material. It's a conversion material on the cathode side, meaning it does a chemical reaction to store the lithium rather than uh, storing it in a crystal structure like most materials. So most materials have a crystal structure of nickel or cobalt or related materials, and the lithium goes in and then the lithium comes back out again. In a sulfur cathode, the lithium goes into the sulfur cathode, reacts with the sulfur, and in that process creates things called polysulfides, which are different shorter chain versions of sulfur starts as S8 and it goes to Li2S6 
and then Li2S4, it goes through this process and you have in that system, these polysulfides that don't stay where they're supposed to stay. It's a, it's kind of a, it's a polysulfide babysitting project almost where it's like, you've got to keep these polysulfides where they're supposed to be. And that's called the, the byproduct the, or the term in the industry is kind of the polysulfide shuttle because these polysulfide materials don't stay where they're supposed to stay. And they basically go back and forth in the system from the cathode to the anode and back again. And when they're doing that, they're not attached to the current collector and you're not getting um, you're not getting capacity out of the battery um, because of that shuttle. This might be a, a th- probably a stupid question, but is that where the energy is stored in these polysulfides or is it stored someplace else? The energy is stored in the cathode in the discharge state or in the anode in the charged state. So the, the lithium represents the energy and it's either on one side of the battery or the other side of the battery. If it's in a charged state, it's all over in the anode. If it's in a discharge state, it's all over in the cathode. So the energy to be stored has to be attached. The lithium ions in their storage have to be attached to one current collector or the other. If they're just kind of loose in the system, you don't have any potential energy there anymore because you don't have mm-hmm. a voltage difference between the two sides of the battery. That, gotcha. Right. So the typically you start in a in a charged state. The everything's over on the lithium side or the anode side rather, and you discharge the battery. It goes over to the other side. Um, and get stored in the sulfur in this chemical reaction. In the process of doing that, it creates polysulfides, which if they stay where they're supposed to stay, you know, great, you're doing good. But typically, they don't stay where they're supposed to, and they run all over the system. And that's kind of the first major problem. The second major problem is what I talked about earlier on the anode side. It's the side that we chose not to really attack for the first several years of the company. It's as sulfur is the lowest cost, highest energy material on the periodic table that's a viable uh, you know, cathode material. Lithium is really the highest energy material on the other side of the battery. So if you look at it, what's going to be the end game for lithium ion. A lot of folks think it's lithium metal on one side and sulfur on the other. So the lithium metal side, if you don't protect that lithium metal with something, it'll form dendrites, these small little tree-like structures that grow off every time you cycle that battery. These dendrites grow from the lithium anodes and they grow out and eventually short the cell. So cell stops working or cell catches on fire. So that's the other problem with a traditional lithium sulfur system is how do you protect that lithium metal anode? So we started only on the cathode for the first few years of development. Mm -hmm. And the original ideas from Cornell, Berkeley, and Stanford were about um, specifically about structures to... um, that would, there were nanostructures that would um, keep the material where it's supposed to be. So there were nanostructures in a particular way called a core shell structure. And that core shell structure was developed and um, 
kind of used for the first time in lithium sulfur batteries in a very similar time frame at Cornell University, at Stanford University, and at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. So they all did a kind of core shell. The idea being, we'll hold the sulfur inside of a shell of something else, and the sulfur will be there. And when the lithium goes in and forms these byproducts, everything will stay inside this shell. They were called yolk shell systems in part. So that sounds great. Okay, you've got the polysulfides where they're supposed to be. And we thought we would solve that would solve the primary problem of lithium sulfur. And that's what we originally licensed and to the company. It ends up that that almost worked a little too well. It, um, when you have a core shell structure, if you do it right, you can trap a lot of the polysulfides where they're supposed to be. The problem is you then very quickly run into a problem that isn't as well known, but is now well known in the, in the kind of industry. You run into a problem that you don't have access to the sulfur for the energy unless you flood the system with liquid because basically these core shells, they're great and they keep the polysulfides where they're supposed to be, but those polysulfides and the, the lithium, the lithium can't get in and do what it needs to do unless there's also liquid in that system. So it's almost like you make all these, they're not buckyballs, but people are familiar with that term. You make all these like tiny balls and you fill them with sulfur. The problem is you then can't get the liquid in there. Um, or if you do, it's not accessing the material well enough. So you can only really get access to the material if you had a whole lot of liquid in the system, which works in an academic setting where you don't need to control the amount of liquid in the battery, but it doesn't work in an automotive setting where if you have a multi-layer pouch cell, you can't have a huge reservoir. You can't have a giant cell filled with liquid um, because you're, it's going to be heavy and it's going to be big. So that's really the second primary problem is doing all of that chemistry, still trapping your polysulfides, mm -hmm. but doing it in a very limited electrolyte system. So that's what we do at Konomics. We've been pushing things to a very, very low level of electrolyte for a number of years. We're on our like sixth generation of cathode material active at this point. And each time we're able to push the system to fewer and fewer um, milligrams uh, per milliliter or milliliter per milligram. It depends how you know how you want to do the ratio, but we have fewer and fewer um, electrolyte molecules for every um, sulfur. And that is what allows us to get to a higher energy level. And doing that is challenging. And so how do you, how are you even validating at the cell come or the cathode level, right? Especially since you don't have the anode prepared that really compare with it. Well, yeah. And how can you be confident then that once that anode is ready, that you'll be able to scale up to, like you said, multi-layer pouch and then ultimately modules and ultimately vehicle level packs. Yeah. So I'll definitely answer that question. Um, and, and then let's come back to kind of how we solve the problem on not having enough electrolyte because well, we, we can, we can start there. If that's easier, we can, we can, it's yeah. a little easier because it kind yeah. of leads into the next Go piece. For it, yeah. I'll definitely answer how we test it. Um, 
the problem when you don't have very much electrolyte is that you don't have you're not able to access the sulfur even if you kind of pin the polysulfides in, in place which we now do with a particular polymer that we've developed that kind of pins the 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 sulf, the, the polysulfides where they need to be so we've done material science innovated patented some new things we can keep the polysulfides where they need to be and but then if you don't have enough electrolyte excuse me you're not accessing the sulfur so you've got to have additional materials in that cell that will do things electrochemically. So we have additional additives that we've developed at Konomics that have a electrochemical storage while also serving a function within the, um, within the cell, in the structure of the cathode by binding things together and we're replacing some of the other traditional materials that are in lithium sulfur cells with a specific a specific additive that we don't disclose the specifics of, but we have an additive that forms more than one uh, that has more than one function. So mm -hmm. one of its functions is actually electrochemical because if you drop the electrolyte ratio down so low, you're not going to access as much of the sulfur. So you can have good loading meaning a lot of stuff on the on the cathode. You can have a good loading there of sulfur. So it seems like you should be able to access and get a really high energy rate or energy uh, amount. But then if you drop the electrolyte, you're not accessing it as much. So mm -hmm. you better have something else in there that also does something electrochemically. That additional multifunctional material that we've added to the cells is what is allowing us to really hit automotive levels of energy density in very, very low electrolyte ratio cells. So the, pol the polymers that we use to trap the um, polysulfides don't take up a lot of space and have other functions in the electro in the, in the electrode design. And then the additives that we've put in also have an additional function electrochemically. They store energy on their own while also doing things within the within the stack of materials. So cool. take all of those things together and we can hit that cathode performance. Your question's a great one. How do we know, <laughs> right? Because we don't integrate, we do run against lithium metal um, anodes all the time. And we run with multiple protection systems that we've been working on for a couple of years now, ourselves and with partners. So we're able to get good performance until the next kind of failure mode of the system, which is electrolyte consumption on the anode. So a lithium anode um, reacts with the small amount of electrolyte that you actually have in the system. And so if you want to have good performance, you need a less reactive anode and that's what we've developed. We've developed a test platform that allows us to test the cathode and push its performance without this second failure mode, without as much electrolyte consumption on the anode side. That test platform is not a commercial system. It's, it's not designed to be. It's designed to prove that the cathode works. So we have a unique test platform that 
we're using within lithium, we've pushed it really far with lithium sulfur so that when we mm -hmm. talk to an automaker, we can say, hey, here's this data and it's against this test system. We know this test system isn't what we're going to go to market with for reason, reason, reason. And, but here you can trust our cathode data. And when we're transparent like that, it works because our cathode data is very, very good. So we're at this point where we know our cathode works now that we're at our sixth plus generation of the material with the additives and the polymers and things. We know that it works at an automotive level, but we don't have it integrated yet against an anode system. We've been testing against multiples. We work with multiple partners that are developing anode systems. We're open to talking to more. Um, if somebody has a really amazing system to protect uh, lithium metal anodes that we don't know about, I'd love to talk to them. Um, it's a lower voltage system in sulfur than in uh, NCA or NMC, um, or LFP. So it's a lower voltage system, makes it a little easier to solve that problem. And we're working on it. So been working on it for a number of years. And that's our next step of what we're doing is to take this locked in cathode performance and combine it with, with an anode. And so in addition to that next step of, of pairing with a suitable anode over time, what, what are the other, how are you thinking about the other steps of right scaling up in size and scale of, of the actual V and then also volume, right? So you can't be producing one to 500 vehicles worth of cells. Like the manufacturing processes need to be able to scale. Like how, how, how much are you guys already thinking about that stuff and how, able to convince yourself that you'll be ready to, to handle those challenges? Yeah, it's, it's a technology first company. It's, we have to make the technology work and work in a way that we know will scale before we scale it, um, you know, I've mentioned the size of the team. We don't have a team to scale to hundreds of automobiles worth of material. Mm -hmm. We do have a team to prove that our cathode material works really well. And we have a team and we're hoping to grow and hire more people. We'll have a team that can prove that it works against an anode. But it's a partnership strategy, very, very deliberate partnership strategy on the scale of manufacturing on the battery manufacturing um you know just like we're not going to be an automotive company we're also not going to be a battery manufacturing company we're going to be a materials company hmm. and a specifically a material technology company so do i eventually move the team from 20 people to 2000 people and i'm making enough material to serve the global need for a very, very low cost cathode material. That seems unlikely. <laughs> I think it's more likely that we'd be partnered with one of the great chemical companies in the world or one of the great battery companies in the world. that's becoming a chemical company in various ways or vice versa. So mm -hmm. it's a partnership strategy. We see ourselves as a technology provider and, um, what we've done on the cathode side and this test platform, for instance, when we started using that test platform, we were able to drive even lower costs um, by reducing the electrolyte cost because as we tested it and we pushed things through multiple failure modes, we were able to discover an even lower cost electrolyte. So if I was doing this interview 
a year ago, I would say it's a 50% cost savings. And hmm. now we're very confident in our lower cost electrolytes that we've developed. And I can say it's a 75% cost savings. That's a, you know, we use Batpack models to estimate the cost. It's a pretty industry standard way to estimate the cost of batteries. Um, but yeah, we see ourselves as a technology provider, not, you know, not a scale up provider someday, maybe, you know, but I think companies scale too soon, often, where mm-hmm. they've got something that, wow, it's sure exciting. And, you know, partners or whoever are pushing you to make more of it. Well, you end up with a factory somewhere making stuff that doesn't work. And that's that's a worse problem to have. I'd rather have something that works and no factory than, than something in a factory that doesn't work. So that's what we're following. And to what extent are you competing with the other technologies out there in the in the battery space? Oh yeah, we're within lithium sulfur. Yeah, we're competing against the other lithium sulfur players. Um, and you know, I think we've got a really great head start and a unique approach. And um, there could be room for multiple winners in that field specifically because the market is so huge. So there could be more than one solution um, to low cost battery material. Um, we think we've got a head start and we think we've got something that's really compelling for the world's automakers. Um, other companies like, you know, we're not competing against folks that do things outside of the battery. So anybody who's doing mm-hmm. like a battery management system or a hybrid pack or any number of other things, those are people that are contributing to the ecosystem. And I don't think we're competing really against the anode companies either. I think we see anode companies as partners um, because, you know, Again, if somebody's listening to this podcast and they've got a really great solution to protecting a lithium metal anode in a sulfur environment, um, you know, we'd like to talk to them. I, I see that as a partnership because if you've got a solution on the anode side, great, you've got a higher energy cell and maybe you've got a lower cost way to make it in one way or another. There's different low cost approaches on that side, but you don't have a cheaper cell for the most part because the cost of the cell is driven predominantly like 50% of the cost of the cell bill of materials is cathode material, nickel, cobalt, aluminum, um, manganese, even LFP itself is it's lower energy, uh, but it's still twice as expensive a full battery compared to ours. And our performance is modeled out to be above uh, LFP by a considerable amount. So um, anode players we see as partners, um, electrolyte, same thing. Um, somebody's got a really great electrolyte that they think is going to work in a sulfur system. I'd love to talk to them. I'm, we're just trying to get the product out into the world. And, um, I guess our, our real competitors would be on the lithium sulfur side, but like I said, it's a huge market. And if somebody else has a solution, there could be room for multiple winners in the space. Gotcha. Yeah, that, that makes makes a lot of sense. So I, I guess one, one last kind of real, real question, then I will close here. I really appreciated the the discussion here. I think I've, I've oh, yeah. learned, learned a ton. You have a nice, uh, yeah, obviously very technically complex topic, but I, I think you, you have a, a good way of explaining kind of the, um, what goes into it at a way, at a way that makes sense. And I can visualize what's, what's going on here. So I, I've been, I've really enjoyed the discussion and, and learning along the way. Um, one question on that note. So I'm always interested to learn from guests on kind of, so th- this is your, uh, I'm more kind of the, the business or personal side, right. Of yeah, you've you've had some some startups that you've uh, you've led and worked with. Had some some success here. What can you think of any specific resources, whether it's a 
book or otherwise that has had a big impact on you and that you might, so I don't picture someone's, you know, going entrepreneur or someone who's um, going and starting and trying to build up um, some something that they're doing. Anything that's had a big impact on you that you might recommend that others check out? Um, yeah, written on my wall is is to keep the main thing the main thing. And, you know, I forget where that quote's from, but it's it's super common. And I'm yeah. embarrassed now that I don't remember. Um, but, uh, you know, I I don't have a specific kind of book. Um, that I'd recommend. I'd really, I recommend network and people, um, which I suppose is maybe a bit of a cop out, but the the people that are in the arena that are moving new technology forward, whether they're a technologist at a university or an entrepreneur um, who's starting a company and not getting paid for a couple of years, those people are the people that you're going to get inspiration from and where you're going to get support from. So I would say find like-minded people, um, and because it's a really hard road, being an entrepreneur, new moving a new technology forward, it's incredibly difficult. So I'm part of a larger network of entrepreneurs that mm-hmm. um, that are moving things forward. And, and you know, I, I have deep connections at the at the universities and, and other people that are innovating things. And, um, you know, I rely on others in the space rather than rather than books. Um, it's just been my approach. Yeah. And even even the way you answered the question about, uh, competition, I think points to the fact that it's very rarely a zero sum game here that we're playing. Like there's, especially when we're talking about the size of the markets that are in this level of impact and innovation that needs to take place or can take place, like lifting others up generally helps out. Yeah. On the sulfur side, I think someone will get there first, and I think we've got a really good shot at it. <laughs> you know, that doesn't mean someone else can't have another solution. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and even the sulfur competitors are such a small subset of everyone who's working on sustainable yeah. transportation technologies, right? Yeah, I mean, right across the hall from me is another company working on hydrogen. They have a company called Ecoelectro, which has uh, a, a method to make uh, hydrogen cheaper than other people have ever been able to make it before. I don't really see them as a competitor, even if if hydrogen takes over, um, you know, alternative fuel vehicles. There's still it's a trillion dollar industry for uh, yeah. it's I I wish my friends over there all the success. We share a refrigerator in, in the kitchen and I wish them all the success and doesn't mean that we can't win because, you know, hydrogen has advantages. Um chemical energy storage batteries, lithium ion have advantages, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, people making LFP packs, for instance, that's not really a competitor either because LFP has a use case that's different than lithium sulfur. Um, And you can make a really great hybrid pack, for instance, where you've got um, two different kinds of chemistry in the same Mm -hmm. pack where one, one cycles over and over again and is used for power and the other one cycles only for like deep depth of discharge, long range. So that hybrid pack, that is LFP in that situation isn't a competitor. LFP is a complement. So, um, you know, I think lithium sulfur and our approach to it will see the light of day in automobiles. Eventually there is a long road. Um, you know, I just said in one press piece that I think it's at least five years from now before there are automobiles on the road driving, uh, lithium sulfur, uh, batteries. And 
you know, that's still years from before they're widely available in showrooms. Mm -hmm. But if you want to get to 2035 and have 100% of your vehicles electric, you better have a better new, you better have a new material that's higher performance and lower cost because the existing materials don't make the use case economically for the automakers. Yeah. And I think that's, that's a great place to leave it. Well, Charlie, th thank you again. Yeah. Really appreciate the, you, you joining in kind of the open discussion here and uh, yeah, we wish you the best of luck. Yeah. Thanks very much, Brandon. I was happy to be here. Right, thanks. Well, there you have it. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Charlotte Hamilton. So what stands out? The obvious, right, is lithium sulfur, battery cell chemistry, what goes into actually making this work? How close are we? You know, they've proven the cathode, as I mentioned, waiting for the anode to come and you have all the scale up type work, but they seem to be very confident in where they are now at the cathode level. Very exciting. Um, the the interesting things are so some of the decisions that have been made about how to grow this company economics is are really interesting to me. So one, staying small, staying lean, not over investing, not over becoming overinflated. I think specifically now, so this is you know late January twenty twenty three, early February twenty twenty three. We're talking, um, we're seeing a ton of tech layoffs. We're seeing a lot of companies who overhired when times were good and when venture capital was flowing freely. Now they're paying the price potentially a good move here to stay lean until it actually makes sense and the time is right to really go go for it also interesting how they made this bet right they made this decision of there's an anode there's a cathode both need to come together for the solution to work they chose to just focus on on the cathode and trust that someone else is going to figure out the anode potentially a risky play as we talked in the episode though probably the less risky play of the two options as opposed to going after both when you consider all the all of the uh, various variables that go into this. And then the, the last one that was super interesting was just, I mean, just, uh, chemistry in the lesson, right? The, uh, the, I really enjoyed learning. I've, I've, I'm a mechanical engineer. I have a hard time grasping really at the cell level, the anode cathode level, what's going on within a battery cell. I'll, well, yeah, sure, I can. I understand most of the vocabulary and stuff, but this was one of the best descriptions. It's not the best description I heard of how does this actually work what's the innovation that's taking place with lithium sulfur what are the challenges all these types of things how are they being overcome so really fun discussion from my perspective I, I hope you enjoyed it as always thank you for listening and more to come next week thank you for listening to the future of mobility podcast brought to you by edison manufacturing and engineering if you have a need for a trusted manufacturing partner for low volumes of highly complex products, then please visit us at edison-mfg.com or feel free to shoot me a note directly at brandon.bartnick at edison-mfg.com or visit my LinkedIn page, Brandon Bartnick. Edison specializes in build and assembly of highly complex products and annual volumes of ten to tens of thousands, utilizing an agile and capital light approach. If you're making an impact in the mobility space, we'd love to help. Until next time, thank you for listening to the Future of Mobility podcast.